Hi, I'm Talia Baroncelli, and you're watching TheAnalysis.News. I'll shortly be joined by community organizer Linda Campbell to speak about housing issues in Detroit, as well as the recent repeal of right-to-work legislation in the state of Michigan. If you enjoy this content, please do go to our website, TheAnalysis.News, and hit the Donate button at the top right corner of the screen. You can get onto our mailing list, and most importantly, please go to our YouTube channel, The Analysis news and hit the bell. The bell ensures that you're informed every time a new episode drops so that you don't miss future content. Thanks and see you in a bit. Joining me now is Linda Campbell. She is the director of the Detroit People's Platform and has been involved in community organizing in Detroit for many years. She's also the editor of A People's Atlas of Detroit, which is a collection of uh, stories, essays, poems, photographs, which, which showcase the everyday struggles of Detroiters for economic and racial justice. So thank you so much for being here, Linda. Yes, thanks for having me. I'd like to start off with some of the work you've been doing at the Building Movement Project in Detroit, as well as the Detroit uh, People's Platform. So maybe you can explain some of the uh, community organizing you've been doing. First, uh, let me clarify the connection with the Building Movement Project, the connection that exists between the Building Movement Project and Detroit People's Platform. Um, Building Movement Project is a national organization based in New York. They uh, do a lot of research and technical assistance with a variety of groups across the country, basically with the mission to provide nonprofit organizations the tools and the capacity to do effective movement building work. Um, the DPP, Detroit People's Platform, connection with the Building Movement Project grows out of my uh, relationship. I am one of the founders of the Building Movement Project uh, in 1999. A group of us came together uh, from across the country, um, various disciplines. Some of us were social service providers, as was I. Some were organizers. Some were uh Academics, some were um, grassroots social change fundraisers. It was an interesting compilation of folk. The one thing we all had in common was our growing frustration with the nonprofit sector here in the United States. Many of us uh, felt that the nonprofit sector was not living into uh, a progressive vision of work on the ground, particularly in communities that were struggling uh, around basic rights, uh, access to services, and, and equity. Um, and so we came together with the mission to really start to organize and agitate the sector to become much more progressive in its work. Um, and so uh, at the time, I relocated to Detroit. Uh, I had been living in New York um, when the Building Movement Project uh, the early iteration of that project, I relocated to Detroit, Michigan, and um, became involved in trying to uh, implement some of the strategies of the Building Movement Project here, and uh, went to work connecting with social service organizations here in Detroit who were seeing thousands of people who 
for a variety of reasons, mostly uh, the divestment in neighborhoods. And a huge one was the divestment in manufacturing and labor in um, not only in Michigan, but across the country, which had resulted in uh, massive layoffs and loss of benefits, uh, loss of benefits for workers who at one time enjoyed some of the highest standards of living in the world, along with world-class health, medical, and other kinds of benefits. And so having uh, uh, been laid off, lost their jobs, um, many of them, uh, families and individuals were turning to local social service agencies to, you know, meet basic needs like food, um, some, uh, you know, assistance with shelter, uh, other emergency needs. And so I started meeting with some of those groups, the social service groups, you know, of course, supporting uh, and, and um, uh, understanding the need for the basic services, but also understanding that the conditions were being caused by some really profound systemic and structural changes that were happening in the community and wanted to work with both the leaders of those social service agencies and their service constituents to begin to sort of uh, reshape the way they thought about the conditions they were experiencing, but more importantly, how to um, uh, address those conditions. And that meant looking more at organizing and building power uh, to challenge the system, to be more equitable, uh, and to um, agitate for better resources in the community and to challenge those with power who were making decisions um, that we felt more aligned with the business interest of community as opposed to, you know, basic and human rights of the community. So that connection with uh, the National Building Movement Project, I continued to meet and, and, and receive support from them we created um, a model of what we call social service and social change. And I was part of the national team that went around the country sort of meeting and, and promoting this way of thinking that you could be a social service provider and still uh, help your constituents to build power and fight for change uh, um, and, you know, taking on the status quo and the powers that be. So Detroit People's Platform sort of evolved out of that work in Detroit uh, back in 2013 when we found ourselves facing the threat of emergency management, which essentially was the state takeover of the nation's largest majority black city, state takeover by a pretty conservative majority white Republican uh, legislature. And so a group of activists came together from across the city and we vowed that we would continue to organize and fight for basic services that Detroiters needed to have a quality of life. So the People's Platform grew out of that in 2013. But it was our work through Building Movement Project, the social service, social change work, where I had been out in neighborhoods and communities working with many different kinds of agencies, whether it was social service groups, youth serving groups, faith-based groups, just kind of promoting this, you know, we need to really look at conditions and power structures that uh, we had already built uh, a network of folk. Uh, and out of that network, people came together and we formed Detroit People's Platform. That's a decade ago. 
That's great. So now there's, I mean, there have been for many decades, but it seems like now you've really been consolidating a lot of that community organizing. And I was wondering if a lot of the nonprofit work in Detroit has played into the negative portrayals of Detroit, which focuses on the sort of urban decay and and treats Detroit as this blank slate, similar to a lot of the you know, the colonial portrayals of Africa as if there's nothing there, as if people haven't been there organizing, sort of ignores a lot of the work that's already been done by everyday Detroiters. So I, I wonder if if you see this sort of portrayal coming from some of the nonprofits you've worked with. I don't know that that was the reality when I think about what was happening here internally in the city. But yes, you're right. That was certainly sort of the external uh, image that was being forced on Detroit. Uh, and that was all part of the narrative that sort of cemented, uh, support for, you know, the speculative land grabs that went on here in the city, uh, the, the emergency management, right? The sort of grabbing, uh, of power and democracy from a majority black, uh, city, the, um, uh, uh, model of uh, redevelopment, which really uh, concentrates wealth and benefit in the hands of mostly white billionaires through our tax abatements. Uh, and they uh, come into the community and develop, you know, uh, projects that are not suited or aligned with the needs of Detroiters because they feel they know best what economic model makes sense for Detroit. And then, you know, there were just your um, uh, uh, folks who, you know, um, you know, were, were, were looking for a place to land, kind of experimenting around the changes that were happening in urban America. And, and majority Black Detroit seemed a place to do that. And so we did attract our <laughs> uh, an unusual number of folks who sort of bought into that model of Detroit abandonment, blank slate, uh, and, and we're here, we're here to solve that. But I mean, in all honesty, I would say a lot of that was an external perception, not so much by the internal nonprofits. I mean, you know, the internal nonprofits that I've worked with, some of them, you know, are more aligned with the status quo than others, but I, I would not, I would not accuse them of that. No, that was an external deliberate narrative that was more about taking power and land grab from majority black city. Yeah. Well, you mentioned how some of the projects have maybe not been best suited to the communities. I'm thinking about, uh, you know, building this very expensive hockey stadium, the little Caesar hockey stadium. I mean, I'm a hockey fan, but I think that if you're building a stadium at the expense of um, students in the neighboring schools who maybe don't even have access to clean drinking water, then then your priorities are wrong. Um, so how what has been the extent of that, uh, like just building these these very expensive real estate projects at the expense of social services or water even? So what happens when you embrace that model of development and it's and it's not just Detroit it's all over the country particularly in urban communities that kind that kind of move movement back to the urban core uh, you know for years cities were not were not thought to be decent places to live <laughs> 
you know, everybody was trying to get to the suburbs, right? And something shifted. All of a sudden, cities became cool places to be. It was the vibrancy of the city. It was, you know, wanting to live, work, and play, you know, in, in cities. Um, and so the move back to the cities sort of triggered a lot of this real estate speculation and real estate development. Uh, and of course, you know, the idea is that um, they, they use tax incentives uh, to, to pay for it. Detroit became an easy target in that regard. Uh, we have our fair share of homegrown um, millionaires and now billionaires who, you know, uh, were able to convince, uh, you know, local officials that investment in that kind of development breeds success and attracts uh, a different demographic, a demographic that brings um, increased income, higher incomes, and therefore uh, more tax revenue for the city. So, um, yeah, stadiums are are easy enough, you know, to finance um, because they have like a, a, a following of folk. You float the bonds and, and you know, there it is. Um, the, uh, the, the idea of investing tax, precious tax resources in those kind of uh, development models is of course absurd uh, because they're short-lived uh, 10, 15 years from now, they'll be looking for another handout to build another stadium. <laughs> and so as opposed to investing in the urban infrastructure, uh, particularly in light of, of some of the issues we've had uh, with, with the climate change, uh, Detroit's a very old city. We're more than 300 years old and a lot of our infrastructure is aging and needs to be replaced. Uh, we're vulnerable uh, to disruptions um, in our in our water system, not only because of Ill, the the inhumane shutoffs, but because of runoff, uh, and that's because just our whole infrastructure is is not up to par. the 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 water shutoffs is a different was a different strategy. The water shutoffs, in many ways, was about uh, displacement. Um, water shutoffs is a, is a way to move uh, a certain demographic of people out of the city, to dispossess them of their property. Uh, and that was part of the takeover emergency management strategy to, um, um, you know, to impose a rate structure uh, that was uh, not sustainable by most Detroiters, given you know the the, the median income in the city, uh, the cost of water became very much a burden for Detroiters. But to also take possession of of one of our, I think if not the highest revenue producing asset we had as a city, Detroit had at one time the largest municipal water system in the world. Uh, we provide fresh water, uh, and uh, I think. Is it freshwater and sewage to about 150 some communities outside of the city of Detroit was a huge moneymaker for the city. I mean, you know, it carried with it a lot of obligations for sure, but uh, a lot of what um, triggered the, um, the takeover of the water system 
the imposition of the of uh, higher rates and water shutoffs was all a part of the sort of displacement and force out of people from the city. And so what was once the Detroit water uh, system managed by Detroiters, you know, now it's a regional system, right? So you see where you divest power, you know, from people in the urban core and you make it a regional asset. So it sounds like that was a, a sort of neo neoliberal um, policy way on the part of the state, right, right. the state of Michigan, which was imposed on the city of Detroit as a way to combat the, the bank, the bankruptcy of the city. Right. So it was like, that was something that was imposed on. Yeah. And people used a variety of tools. There was so many, uh, tools that were used uh, as a part of the bankruptcy and emergency management, opening and, and cancellation of union contracts. I think they start repaying on worker pensions, city worker pensions next year. So it was, I mean, I, I don't hardly use the terms like neoliberalism, but yeah, I, I would say that that strategy was very much and is very much in play in Detroit right now. The the development model is a is a neoliberal model because it's rooted in <laughs> uh, uh, real estate speculation. Land is commodity. Land is commodity. Everything is a commodity, right? So, right, and and I would assume that that is still an issue in Detroit. You still have a lot of housing speculation, uh, foreclosures, evictions. Would you say that the problem has gotten worse since the 2013 bankruptcy or has the city been investing in affordable housing or doing anything to try and reduce speculation in the housing market? Well, we still have an unfair um, housing burden in Detroit. Uh, some of it as a result of over-assessment over and over-taxation, which has resulted in uh, unwarranted foreclosures. Um, we still, and therefore you still have the, um, the landscape for speculation. The speculation isn't as, uh, aggressive as it was 10 years ago, but it, but it still occurs. A, a, a lot of the land has actually been bought up. A lot of the land has been transferred into the hands of, um, corporate entities, whether that's the homegrown, um, uh, millionaires who own large uh, acres of land here in the city, or uh, your out-of-town investor, or um, you know, folks from um, uh, across the world. So there's still that much going on in Detroit, but there's been a significant uh, uh, displacement of Detroiters out of what had been, I would say, some of the most reasonably priced housing in the nation. And as housing increasingly becomes a scarcity in this country, you get that kind of speculation, um, which results in, um, you know, a mismatch between what I can afford for housing and what I'm being charged for housing. Right. Uh, and so, you know, there's a, there's a significant amount of displacement that continues to happen but it's happening through evictions in addition to um, in addition to uh, foreclosures here in the city. And have Democratic lawmakers at the state level been speaking about this issue of 
uh, affordable housing? Well, up until very recently, as you know, we were living, we've lived under a Republican controlled legislature for what, 30, 40 years. Uh, we've always had, you know, uh, a core group of Democrats from, from the city who have been sympathetic to issues around affordability and, um, uh, um, you know, issues around that, that impact, you know, majority Detroit, um, because, you know, Detroit is the biggest city in the state, but have had little opportunity to <laughs> use their power because, you know, it was a Republican controlled uh, legislature. Since the governor, let's see, the governor was elected in 20, when was, when, was she elected in 2018? I think we brought in a um, Democratic governor. She has moved to address the issue of affordability because, as I mentioned, affordability is a problem nationwide. Uh, it's particularly acute here in Detroit just because of all the speculation and land grabbing that's been going on and the and the high level of rent burden because of, of, of our income uh, situation here. But it's a problem across the state of Michigan. And as it became apparent that it is a problem across the state of Michigan, uh, meaning that even in some of the wealthier communities, uh, they're struggling to ha to um, provide housing for their workers. And so workforce housing uh, is a huge concern. And so you get folks who maybe would not have been as quick to... Um, uh, sort of rally around affordability if it, if they thought it were just a Detroit problem. It is a statewide problem now. And so um, the governor produced a, a blueprint uh, uh, for affordable housing, statewide blueprint for affordable housing. She has recently moved uh, to invest money in affordable housing. Uh, and um, they have, uh, I think just a couple of weeks ago, um, expanded uh, resources, including the way that tax, uh, tax abatements can be applied to affordable housing development. So there, there is movement there. Now, affordability is uh, relative, right? For us in Detroit, affordability is about, you know, people who... It's housing for people who make less than $35,000 a year, people who are, um, you know, who had households with children. That's our primary concern. When you start talking about workforce housing and affordability, you're up, you know, you move the income up higher. Uh, and so we have to pay, as, as housing justice activists, we have to pay uh, real close attention and sort of deconstruct the notion of affordability. Does it, when you talk about affordability, are you talking about affordable housing that meets the needs of, of households with children? When you're talking about the primary um, uh, breadwinner, maybe making thirty to thirty-five thousand dollars a year. So there still remains a lot of work to be done in terms of advocacy and, and, and public policy to make sure that those resources are tailored for our community. Well, there have been some uh, 
you know, developments and, and positive developments in the state. I'm thinking of recent developments where the state of Michigan repealed the anti-union right to work legislation and also reinstated the prevailing wage, which would in effect mean that uh, it would take the wage that people are um, earning right now because of the work that unions have been doing. So it could be, you know, much higher than the, the minimum wage by reinstating the prevailing wage. Um, what else do you think uh, the Democrats can do in the state to help working people? I would love to, I would love to see the Democrats get, well, I think it's in the court now. I don't know that they can do much about it, but we still have a minimum wage increase uh, that, that has not been um, um, acted upon. It's in court right now, an increase in the state minimum wage and uh, earned paid sick time. And now that reaches uh, employees and workers on the on the lower end of the pay scale. They're not the union jobs uh, with the uh, you know higher higher wages. So I would like to see some equity in that way, making sure that you know our non-union workers are covered by at minimum a decent minimum wage and uh, have the ability to have earned paid sick time on whatever job they're they're working on here in this in the state of Michigan. Those two issues we fought hard to um, uh, to collect signatures. We were on our way to put them on the ballot. Uh, it was passed by the state legislature, and then they came back. This was the uh, under Republican control. They came back and um, <laughs> struck you know struck it down. Right, and so we've been in a court battle for the last, what, three, four years, trying to win that. So even in labor uh, issues in the state, there's always that this dichotomy. You know, um, how do these policies impact, you know, the folks who are most vulnerable? Are the policies equitable? You know, is there a racial equity analysis to these policies. Um, and that, you know, again, that's the work that we have to do in our campaigns. Right. And you, you, you pointed that out that it's, uh, you know, not everyone works a union job. So the prevailing wage was only for people working public jobs where they're covered under the right. And so of course that waging right. doesn't Im uh, apply to people who don't have a union job. So obviously. Yeah. Very elite group of folks. And what, are you working on right now with the city council? You said that you were working on a campaign. Yeah, uh, we have one of these big developments. The same, the same guy who, the same company that built the arena that you referenced, which I assume it's Little Caesars Arena, hockey arena. They're back to and asking for eight hundred and some million dollars in tax abatements to build out the neighborhoods around the arena with luxury housing. Uh, luxury apartments and um, office office buildings, and so um, we're fighting the uh, abatement issue. Um, you know, which you know they carry a lot of power uh, and a lot of influence, um, but we have managed to create a, a, a opposition that we think we can win some some concessions as part of a community benefit agreement, which we did not have the community benefit agreement piece in place when uh, 
Little Caesars Arena LCA was was uh, developed back in 2013-2014. And do you have a lot of the support of the more artistic and cultural community in the city? Because a lot of people who live in Detroit, you know, they're artists, musicians. Detroit is famous for Motown, for techno, for a lot of different styles of music. And it's, it's sort of a, a safe haven for a lot of artists who want to tap into the creativity of the city. So do you see support coming from those circles for some of the community organizing you've been doing? Yeah, I mean, we've had we've had some really good collaborative partnerships uh, and organizing relationships with uh, artists. Uh, When we organized uh, to win the community community benefit agreement ordinance, we had a whole group of artists who sort of brought their skills and talents to the coalition and, uh, you know, provided that kind of cultural, <laughs> cultural spin on the organizing, which was much appreciated. They have, some of them have continued to work with us over the past decade since that campaign. Um, there's a lot of organizing that goes on in cultural spaces here in Detroit. Uh, I'm not particularly uh, I'm not in those spaces uh, because those happen to be younger spaces and <laughs> I'm a boomer. Uh, and so I feel like, you know, there, there's some differences in the way we sort of think about and, and, and express uh, our movement work. And that's okay. You know, it's generational, but yeah, I would say that a, a lot of that still goes on in the city. Mm-hmm. Men, black and brown young people. Yeah. There's a lot of that. <laughs> Well, Linda Campbell, thank you so much for making time. And it was great to speak to you about community organizing and the different problems that the city of Detroit is facing, but also the resilience of the people there. So, yeah, I appreciate that so much for that reference. And thank you for watching the analysis.news. Please don't hesitate to donate to the show by going to theanalysis.news and hitting the donate button at the top right corner of the screen. You can also go to our YouTube channel, The Analysis-News, and hit the bell. It's important that you hit the bell. That way you'll be notified every time a new episode drops. Thanks.